question, what is man, has been a question that has baffled man throughout the ages. By experience and observation, we may learn many practical lessons about our physical organism and the working of our intellect and emotions. But in itself, such does not answer the question, what is man? The Bible is a revelation of God to man and man to himself. That being said, by experiment, we may learn the mode of operation of the seed of a life, but that gives us no clue at all as to what that life truly is. We may learn the method of the operation of electricity without learning one thing as to what electricity is. Psychology and the much talked about psychoanalysis may teach us much about the methods of the operation of man's spirit, but they cannot reveal to us what it is or from whence it came. And so we ask ourselves the question this morning, what is man? We answer first by looking at man's beginning. A very familiar passage is found in the second chapter of the book of Genesis and the seventh verse where the Bible says, And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. In this great work, God did not merely speak man into existence as he did all other works in creation, but he honored the man by forming him with his own personal act. You know, the Bible says when God in, in all of his infinite wisdom and power and might as the great architect of this universe, when he spoke all the other things into existence, he said, let there be light. And the Bible says, and there was light and so forth and so on, all other aspects of creation. But not when it came to man. He did so with his own personal act. The Bible says from the dust of the ground, he created man. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Now, this verse needs to be studied in connection with other passages in the Bible. You know, that's one of the greatest things that's found in the scriptures, or the greatest thing about the scriptures, is it never contradicts itself. It all works together. So when we look at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, what does it say? It lists two aspects of man. Man in bodily form and a man having a soul. That's only two. We look at that in connection with other passages in the Bible, like, for example, in the New Testament, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23, because the Bible says that man does not have two parts, but man has three parts. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, the Apostle Paul, he said, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, that your spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. No contradiction, just an addition where we find that man has three parts. In Genesis 2 and 7, it mentions only two, body and soul. But then, as much as body and soul was created, immediately and simultaneously, God created the spirit. In Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 1, the Bible says, The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord, which stretcheth forth the heavens, and layeth the foundation of the earth, and formeth the spirit of man within him. Now, going back to our passage in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. 
And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. I want to notice a very interesting word here. And that is the word breathe or breath. It comes from a Hebrew word which is called shama or shama. However it is that you pronounce that word. Interesting word because the Bible says that whatever God did, he did that. When man became a living soul, God did that. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That word breathe, by definition, uh, according to Mr. Strong, is a puff, wind, angry, or vital breath, divine inspiration, intellectually or concrete, an animal. Well, since the breath that's introduced into the nostrils of this man is the same that makes other animals alive, it required that man, made in the image of his creator, should have something else added to it to lift him above all order of living beings. And that was the spirit created within him. We're going to get to this later. But man has something that's eternal. And all other forms of creation do not have that. That's what makes man different from everything else that God has created. Keeping this in mind, what else do we know about the nature of man? In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 26, we find that the body without the spirit is dead. For as the scripture says, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. You know, we look at this passage so many times from the aspect of faith. And we draw the connection because we understand that the body without the spirit is dead. If the life force is removed from the body, the body does not continue to live. So we, we look at that in connection with faith and works. Now we understand that the kind of faith that we need to have is not a dead faith, not a faith that substitutes words for deeds and all of that, but we need to have a working faith. The way we do that is we demonstrate our faith by our obedient works. We understand that. For example, you should be able to look at my life. I'll just use me as an example. And you should be able to look at my life and understand that I'm a Christian. And understand that I am a child of God. Without me saying one word about what I believe, you ought to be able to do that. You, I ought to be living my life in such a way that I am demonstrating my faith by my, not meritorial works, but my obedient works. You know, the Bible says that we're, not, we're, we're saved by grace. We are. We're saved by grace. That's true. And the Bible says, not works lest any man should boast. All that means is, that's a passage that's misinterpreted so much today. Those word, the, the word works there is talking about works of merit. In other words... There is no list in the world that I can create that I can say I've done all of these wonderful things. Therefore, I've earned my salvation. But we are saved by works, obedient works, demonstrating our faith in our life. All that being said, that's the connection or the comparison between the body and the spirit. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Death is predicated of the body. And the separation of the spirit from the body results in death of the body. Now, 
We find a characteristic of man that's different from all others in creation is as we have on the board, we were made or created in the image of our creator or God, as we've already read. Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and so forth and so on. And the Bible says in verse 27 that God created man in his image. Now, here's a point that we need to make here. We have the question, what's it talking about when it says that we were made in the image of God? Let me just make a statement here. Being made in the image of God has absolutely nothing to do with our physical appearance or our physical bodies. It doesn't mean that at all. You know, I'm going to make a statement here when it says... Let us make man in our image after our likeness. I want to make a point about likeness. Tanner, my son, led a song earlier, looks like me. And his whole life, people have said, Tanner is in my likeness. Sometimes they've even called him my little mini-me. And i got to tell you, I kind of like that. I like it that we wear our hair the same. I like it that my son resembles me or looks like me. Taylor uh, is in the likeness of Tina. She bears that likeness. And so we use that word likeness when we talk about that today when somebody looks like someone physically. But when the Bible says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, it has nothing to do with physical appearance at all. Now, if the view that's entertained by materialists be true, then man is no more than an image shaped out of clay with air breathed into him. Acts 17 and 29 says, For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think of the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. So, the word image does carry the idea of likeness, but here's my question. What's the point of likeness? What's the points of likeness? We are in the image of God. Well, there are three things, three points of likeness that make us in God's image. Number one is intellect. Intellect. Man is different from all other forms of creation because of intellect. The spirit knows. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, the Bible says, For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of a man which is in him? For, so, for even so the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. What's that saying to me? That's saying that I have a likeness or a similarity to God in that I have a spirit that knows my thoughts just as the spirit of God knows his thoughts. That is a point of likeness. Now, it's a very interesting concept about having intellect and understanding things that other forms of creation do not understand. In Romans chapter 8, and I realize as uh, Sean McAllister was preaching when he was here over at Brundage, he mentioned in a sermon about Romans chapter 8, and be careful about when it has a capital S, it's talking about the Holy Spirit and so forth and so on. I'll just make this point here. There's something about me and you 
that's different from all other forms of creation by way of intellect that is very important, and that is this. In Romans chapter 8, I believe when the Bible says that the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit uh, testifies with our spirit that we are the sons of God. How does that work? Now, it doesn't say that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, testifies to our spirit. That would have been miraculous and direct. It doesn't say that. It says with. So you know what that means to me? I respectfully submit to you this is what I believe that's talking about. When I open up this book and the Holy Spirit reveals himself to me about all the things that I must do in order to be saved, my intellectual mind, the mind of my spirit, can understand what it is that I must do in order to be saved. When I compare that with what the book says, with what I have done, I can know and I can determine whether I'm a child of God. That's wonderful. There's nothing miraculous. That means I can understand. You know why? Because I have a point of likeness with God, and that is intellect. The Bible says that nobody knows my thoughts except the spirit of me that I have. Nobody knows my thoughts like that. Just like nobody knows the thoughts of God, save the spirit of God. Now, in Romans 8 also, it talks about the spirit with groanings that cannot be uttered. I believe that's talking about the human spirit, the spirit of man. I want to illustrate it to you like this. This has happened to me twice in my life. Just twice. And I've never told anybody this until just now. But it happened to me not long ago, last summer. It happened when the death of our firstborn son. And it happened when I got a phone call from a doctor saying that I had throat cancer. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, that sometimes I do not know, as I paraphrase, what to pray for. But my spirit, I believe that's what that's talking about, with groanings that cannot be uttered, understands what I feel. When I got that phone call, I want to tell you something. I was by myself. And I wasn't afraid for me. But I fell to my knees, and I started to pray, and I started to cry. And I'm going to tell you something right now. I did not know what to say. I had no clue as to what to say. I knew how I felt. I knew that I was, I was torn inside, not for me, but for my family. And the only thing that I could think of is my family or the possibility of how awful it would be if my family had to go on without me. They need me. And I'm going to tell you something. I absolutely, now you may not think that I've ever been, had a loss for words, but I'm going to tell you, I had a loss for words. I was overwhelmed. And folks, I believe that's exactly what that's talking about. I knew, what, I knew how I felt. I couldn't form the words. Here's the blessing. God heard those groanings. As if I would have spoke them myself from my own lips. Amen. I'm going to tell you something, folks. That is a blessing. You know why? Intellect, that makes me different, makes you different from all other forms of creation. I'll just go to another passage too, though, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 23. 
Here's more about intellect. And be renewed in the spirit of what? Of your mind. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. How is it that you're renewed in the spirit of your mind? I think that's exactly what Romans chapter 12 is talking about, verses 1 and 2, about being transformed. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by how? By the renewing of your mind. There's only one way you can renew your mind, and that is to look to the word of God and have your mind renewed day by day. Intellect, a point of likeness. But secondly, there's something else that we have as a point of likeness with our creator. And that is emotion. Emotion. The Bible says, for example, that the spirit grieves. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30, it says, grieve not the Holy Spirit. You know what that word grieve means? I'm going to give you the exact definition of this word grief. It's, it's, it's great because it really, it really brings it home. And let me ask you, have you ever had this feeling? Have you ever had this? It says grieve not the Holy Spirit. What did I say? I'm talking about a point of likeness, emotion. Grieve not the Holy Spirit. The word grieve there means, get this, to cause distress, sorrow, or sadness. Point of likeness. Emotion, the spirit grieves. I'm going to tell you something. I've had sorrow, have you? I've been sad. I have been forlorn. I have had all that. Same idea. Guess what? Your creator understands every bit of that too because that's a point of likeness he has with his creation. In Daniel chapter 7 and verse 15, the Bible says, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body, and the, and the visions of my head troubled me. You know, there is even a grief process today, isn't there? Sometimes people go through shock in the process, and then sadness or tears, and sometimes anger kicks in. You know, sometimes anger's first, but there is a process. We feel things that animals don't feel. And that's a point of likeness we have with our great creator. Another form of emotion is to rejoice. You know, when the Bible talks about rejoicing, even the angels in heaven rejoice. These are beings that are in heaven, and even they rejoice. When what? When even one sinner comes to repentance. I rejoice too. Isn't it great when we can rejoice together about things? When someone obeys the gospel and we all rejoice together? We might have won, might have planted a seed, one might have watered. God gave the increase and when that soul is saved, what do we do? We all rejoice together. That's what Jesus said. We all rejoice together. That's a form of emotion. In Luke 1, 47, the Bible says, And my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. Two forms of emotion, grieving and rejoicing. But the third part, or the third thing, that is a point of likeness between us and our Creator. And this really separates us. This really separates us, and that is this. Both our Creator and ourself have a determined will. That's what makes us really different. You might think that an animal has emotions, and you might argue that point. Not higher forms of or higher degrees of, but I'm going to tell you, 
when you get down to a determined will, you start separating us from everything for a gr- in, in a great degree. A determined will. The Bible says the spirit wills. In Matthew 26 and 41, the Bible says, Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. What about God? How do we know that God wills? Because the scripture says so. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. If we ask anything according to what? According to his will, he heareth us. Now God always hears his children. He always hears the audible words of his children. But he answers those prayers favorably in our favor as we ask if we pray according to his will. And if it is his will, he grants those things. And that's what that passage is talking about. Now, intelligence is not an attribute of the body. If it were, the body would be just as intelligent after the separation of the spirit from the body as before. The image consists not in physical likeness, but in intellectual or spiritual likeness. Now, what I'm saying here in summary of this part is this. God possesses these things in an infinite degree. And before I start, I don't want to leave the impression that we're just like God because we are not. He is great. We are not. God possesses these things in an infinite degree. And I got them in a finite degree. But I have them. It's a point of likeness. A point of likeness with my creator. Paul declares that we ought not to think that God is like a material image in Acts 17 and 29. In fact, Paul declared that ignorance caused men to think that God was like material images. Notice the passage that's found in the book of Acts really quickly. Acts chapter 17 and beginning in verse 29. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. Look at verse 30. And the times of ignorance God winked at. That was a time of ignorance when man thought God could be worshipped as a graven image. And there was a time of ignorance. God winked at that. Not anymore, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. A continuation of that passage. And so it is now, folks. Someone that believes that that God can be worshipped in a graven image is still just ignorance. Because God is not that material image. You know, we've talked about what is man. Now let's ask ourselves the question, what is God? In John chapter 4, a very familiar narrative, and I'll just paraphrase through that rather quickly. But you remember the incident when Jesus was with his disciples and Jesus was passing through Samaria. Now, many times, especially in the last week of the life of Jesus, you remember that as they were going to Jerusalem for the Passover, they went through Jericho. Why? Avoid Samaria. You know why? Because the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other and they worshiped even in different places. They couldn't stand each other. But Jesus on purpose goes through Samaria. And what does he find? As he's walking along, he comes to the woman at the well and he says, woman, draw me to drink. And she says, how is it that a Jew and a man be asking of me, a woman of Samaria, for a drink? 
And Jesus said, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking for a drink that I can give you. And if you had that water that I have, you'll never thirst. She had no idea. None at all. What he was talking about. So you know what she says? Let's have it. I'll take it. Let's have some of that water. They start talking about places of worship. And Jesus responds like this. He says, wait a minute. He says, God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in both spirit and in truth. John chapter 4 verses and verse 24. Finally, along this line, you remember that Jesus, when he went to Golgotha's brow and he hung on Calvary's cross, he hung there for about six hours. Jesus dies on the cross. Jesus is taken down from the cross. He is buried, the Bible says. And we find in Luke chapter 24, that account, that early on that Sunday morning, when those women had gone out to spy the sepulcher, only to find that the stone was rolled away and the body of Jesus was gone. Remember that? Remember when two disciples were walking along that seven and three quarter mile journey to a little village called Emmaus? And as they're walking along, they get a visitor. Remember who he is? It's Jesus. But they don't recognize who he is. And Jesus preaches himself to them by beginning with Moses and all the prophets and revealed himself through God's word to them. Jesus was resurrected from the dead on that day. Now, when Jesus spent those 40 days with his disciples, one of the things that he said is, A spirit hath not flesh and bones. So if God is a spirit, he has no flesh and bones, and there's no image that can be ever put together, no statue, nothing that can assimilate what God is, because God is a spirit. Well, we find at death, the spirit returns to God. And I'm talking about this, this part of man. I'm going to make this point, because sometimes people say this. Sometimes people say that when you use the word spirit, in the Bible, in the New Testament, you are saying that interchangeably that spirit and soul could be used uh, just equally so. You might be able to say that spirit in a general sense includes the soul, or you could be speaking of something called the soul by mentioning it in a general sense as the spirit, but you can't always look at these interchangeably because these are three specific separate parts of man. How do I know that? Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 7. The Bible tells me that the spirit at death goes where? It goes to God. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was. What's the dust? That's the body. And what happens to the spirit? That life force in man. The spirit goes back to God who gave it. That's two parts. But there's more. There's more. When Jesus was crucified on the cross... The Bible says he hung between those two malefactors and one said, if you are who you say you are, save thyself and us. The other one says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus turned to this man and Jesus said, today, today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. In paradise. The soul went to paradise. The spirit went back to God who gave it, and the body went to the tomb, back to the dust of the ground. 
When Jesus was on the cross, he says finally to his father, Father, into thy hands I do what? I commend my spirit. This part, right then and there. The soul went somewhere else. The land of departed righteous souls. Hades, the Hadean realm, the place, the abode of the righteous souls at death. But the spirit goes back to God who gave it. When Jesus was buried, though, there was another part of him, and that was his body. And the Bible says, according to uh, the 16th Psalm in the 10th verse, that his body would not be left in hell or Hades, neither will his Holy One, God's Holy One, see corruption. Another translation says that, that word corruption is decay. It was prophesied that Jesus, when buried, would not be buried so long that his body would decay and decompose. Three parts. That's the body. Soul went to paradise with the thief. The spirit, though, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. The spirit went back to God who gave it. Another example, Acts 7 and 59, when Stephen was giving his defense. He was giving his great defense. He was preaching. He was giving his defense. And the Bible says that they were absolutely infuriated. They take him outside to stone him to death. You remember what happened? He says he looks up and he saw Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And that was all she wrote. That's all they needed to hear. And the Bible says that they ran upon him and they stoned him to death. And before he died, what did he say? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Receive my spirit. But Stephen's soul, the immortal part, the part that will live on forever, he's in paradise. With all the other redeemed and saved in the body of Christ awaiting the resurrection. We learn from these passages in summary thus far that the spirit of death returns to God. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes again, he will bring with him those that have died in the faith. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 14 says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Now, what's the body for then? Seems to me that there's a couple very important parts of man in the spirit and the soul. Especially the soul. So what's the body for? And does it matter what we do in the body? Well, the body is the house that houses all of that. 2 Peter 1, beginning in verse 13, the Bible says, Yea, and I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this tabernacle, even as the Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. One more passage, please. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, what do we have? Paul says we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that which would be, we'd be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. 
the fleshly body is the tabernacle where, or the house in which the real man lives. Paul shows that at death we put this tabernacle off and the spirit leaves the body. And that's exactly what the psalmist David said in Psalms 90 and verse 10 when it says the days of our years are threescore years and ten. If by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is there strength in labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off, and we what? And we fly away. What's flying away? Not the body. I'm going to tell you something. Wouldn't it be something if the body started flying around? You know, i got to tell you something. As a preacher and a painting contractor, I've spent a lot of time in mortuaries. I spent a lot of time in that with preaching funerals and painting mortuaries. You know, I always had all these thoughts and all these people and rumors and stuff where people talk about what happens and, and, de- and bodies that are dead and so forth in the mortuary and, and raising up and doing all manner of things that kind of give you the creeps. And you know what he said to me? I asked a mortician that one time. You know what he said? He said, man, I am a third generation mortician. I have seen it all. And if a body raises up, I'm hitting the door. It's not possible. The physical body is dead. What flies away? It's the spirit. It's the spirit that leaves the body. Now, so at death, the body goes to the ground. Spirit goes back to God who gave it. But now the third part, and that's the most important part. That's the soul. Because the soul never dies. There will never be a time when the soul is no longer. In fact, whether you're saved or whether you're lost, there will never be a time when the soul is no longer. It goes on for eternity. And you cannot kill the soul. Jesus said in Matthew 10 and 28, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both what? Soul and body in hell. Now, in Philippians chapter 1, the Bible says that the Apostle Paul had a straight. The King James Version says. He had a straight. That passage says, for me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet when I shall choose, I know not. For I am in a strait betwixt or between two. Having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh, listen, is more needful for you. He knew that to be with the Lord was far greater for himself, but he also knew that that's not the best thing for the cause of Christ. Now, let me just say this. It didn't mean he had a death wish. It didn't mean he wanted to do himself some kind of harm. It didn't mean that at all. You know what's really sad to me? What's really sad to me is when people think that there's no other way that there's no other way out except to take their own life, having a death wish and removing themselves from this life. I've never understood that. I've spent the better part of a year being treated. I'm going to tell you something about some people that I saw. 
I saw some little old ladies that were fighting for their life. I saw people that were fighting with every fiber of their being to live. I talked to people and they would tell me that the reason that they wanted to live is because of their family and they were going to do every single thing that they possibly could to live. You know why, folks? Because it doesn't make any difference whatever we're in or whatever state we're in. It is never, ever, ever okay to quit. It is never okay to end it, ever. And nowhere in the Bible does it say that that's okay. Nowhere. I don't understand some of the things about that. There was a song written about that very thing. And it says, it was just another story printed on the second page underneath the Tigers football score. It said he was only 18, a boy about my age. And they found him face down on his bedroom floor. There'll be services on Friday at the Lawrence Funeral Home then out on Mooresville Highway, they'll lay him neath a stone. But how do you get that lonely? How do you hurt that bad? To make you make the call that having no life at all is better than the life that you had. How do you feel so empty that you want to let it all go? How do you get that lonely and nobody know? Did his girlfriend break up with him? Did he buy or steal that gun? Did he lose a fight with drugs or alcohol? Did his mom and daddy forget to say, I love you, son? Did no one see the writing on the wall? I'm not blaming anybody. We all do the best we can. I know hindsight's 2020, but I still don't understand. One little example, Elijah, we all know the story. He was depressed, he was down, he wanted to die. But let's always use him as an example and look at the whole story. Went to a funeral not long ago when a preacher used that story at a funeral, funeral home of a fellow that took his own life. But there's a second part to that. You know what the angel of the Lord said to him? Oh, he was down. He wanted to end it. He wanted to die. Angel of the Lord said, you know what he said? He says, you're wrong. Get up and go back. What else? There's work to be done. What else? It's not time for you to die. And by the way, your entire thinking is wrong. Because it's not hopeless. There are still 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. It's never okay to quit. In this life, it is never okay to quit. Paul had a struggle to know that to be with the Lord would have been wonderful and great. But he knew that the cause of Christ needed him in this life. And folks, that needs to be every Christian's desire. Let's leave this world better than we found it. You know, anybody can do that. Anybody can. You might say, well, not me. Yeah, you. Yes, you. Everybody in their own even small center of influence, can make the world better than they found it. Can make the world better for the cause of Christ than, than, once it, than, than what it once was. Because I'll tell you something, folks. The soul is eternal. And will be judged by the things that we did when all these things were together 
in the body. Outer man perishes, inner man renewed day by day. 2 Corinthians 4, and I'm almost finished. 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 16. For which cause we faint not, but through our outward man perish, though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things that are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That's an amazing passage. You know what he says? He's talking about the outer man, and it's going to perish. And I'll tell you this. If I live long enough and the Lord doesn't come back, this outer man, this body is going to decay, perish, wear out. I may be an old, old man that can't even move. And at the very same time, my inner man can be still renewed day by day. Remember, be renewed, Ephesians 4, 23, in the spirit of your mind. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Our concern today, folks, is our eternal soul. That being said, I want to ask you how it is with you today. How is it with you today in this life? Have you been living as you should? Have you understood what the Bible teaches that you must do in order to be saved? And have you followed that? Are you on the path? Are you on the straight and narrow way? First of all, the Bible is very clear on what a person must do to be saved. The Bible says in Romans 1 and 17, So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Jesus said in Mark 16, 15 and 16, He that believeth, and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Jesus said in Luke 13 and 3 and also verse 5, I tell you nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Then Jesus said, if you'll confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father which is in heaven. That confession is simply, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. These are steps that are unto, they are up to, or... They point toward the point of salvation, which is in water baptism, where we go down into the waters of baptism, contact the blood of Jesus, have our sins washed away, and the Lord Jesus Christ adds us to his church right then and there. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information, or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.